John chapter 5. We've been working our way through this chapter. It's taken us three sermons, but um, I hope it's been um, useful, and I, I think it has been. And the majority of this chapter has really been Jesus kind of giving a defense to these leaders to say that he truly is the Son of God and that he was sent by God to earth. And so it's this, this kind of him defending himself, and these folks, these Jewish leaders are accusing him of blasphemy, you know, claiming to be God, and they're accusing him of breaking the Sabbath day, breaking the law, and so there's all these accusations being thrown at Christ, and he here is giving a defense um, of, of himself, and, he, and last week we really saw him being the, the witness of himself, and now this week, we're going to see other witnesses for Christ. And he's going to bring them out to us in his teaching. Before we dive into those, though, uh, I was reading about this, doing some study here, and thinking about in the Old Testament, when someone committed a major crime, like blasphemy or like murder, some major Old Testament crime, the only way they could be you know, sentenced to death for that major crime would be on, on the back of two witnesses, multiple witnesses that were good. And being witnessed back then, by the way, in the Old Testament was a very big deal. If you were caught lying, then you could be under, you know, you might be killed. So a very big deal for true witnesses to be brought in our Old Testament teaching. And Jesus is standing before these people who should know that Old Testament. And he's saying to them, I am bringing to you witnesses on my behalf. Listen to these witnesses is what he says. So if you'll look with me at verse 31. Before we read the whole passage, we'll just read this verse. It says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. That's an interesting verse. Is Jesus calling himself a liar here? Did Jesus lie? Of course not, right? He's not saying that his testimony is not true, but he's speaking to this Old Testament understanding they have that there must be other witnesses to come about and and, and help prove a case. And so what he is saying to them and what he's saying to us today is, listen closely, here are witnesses of me. So if you're there back in verse 31, say word. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You sent unto John, that's John the Baptist, and he bare witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that ye might be saved. He was a burning and shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witnesses than that of John. For the works which the Father hath sent me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. You have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me, that you may have life. 
I receive not honor from men, but I know you, that you have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe which receiveth honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? In this text, I want to give you four witnesses that he brings out here about Christ. Number one, the first witness that Jesus would call to the stand here is God the Father. God the Father. We see the Father mentioned by Christ multiple times here, and at least in four occasions, I see here, you may not can read that, I apologize for the small writing, but I underline those for you, at least four occasions here, you can see that God the Father sent God the Son. Can you see those in verse 30? Him who sent me, speaking of the Father. Verse 36, verse 36, he says it plainly, the Father has sent me. Verse 37 again, the Father who sent me. Verse 38, the one whom he has sent. We see a clear picture of Christ saying, God, I am sent here by the Father. The God you claim to know, the God you claim to worship, he sent me here. As a matter of fact, at the very end of this book, in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus is going to look at his disciples and he's going to say, As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. It's clear that, number one, God the Father sent God the Son. Number two here, God the Father sent God the Son to accomplish a purpose. Again, look at verse 36. It says, the works that the Father has given him to, to do or to accomplish. I would ask you to think about this for just a moment, and you can see it there, but what was Jesus' purpose? Why did the Father send the Son? I'm going to give you three things. First, to preach the gospel of God. Jesus came to preach, didn't he? The first thing Jesus said is, repent and believe to enter the kingdom of heaven. One of the first things he said. So Jesus came to preach the gospel of God. Number two, he came to obey the law of God. Why is that important? Because to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, right, he had to perfectly keep every prescription of the law of God to a T, to which he did, right? So he was a perfect, sinless Savior. And that leads to number three there, of course, Jesus came to die for the people of God. So he came to preach, he came to live, and he came to he came to die. These are the works, or part of the works, which the Father sent him to do. Look at number three. The third thing about this is, also in this passage, God the Son accomplished the purpose of God the Father and obeyed the Father's will. Verse 30, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. Jesus Christ, Son of God, who was powerful, allowed himself to follow and obey the Father's will. He says, I seek not my own will, in verse 30, but the will of him who sent me. In verse 36, he says, these very works that I am doing. So the Son accomplished the works of the Father. Follow me so far? Follow me? Okay. There was a, uh, a movie I used to love back when I was younger called The Matrix. Has anybody ever seen that movie? If you haven't seen the movie, this illustration is going to be awful. But... Those that have seen the movie know at the end, right, he gets shot, but all of a sudden he comes back to life, the main character, Neo, 
and all the people watching on the computer screen are like, he's the one. Remember that? They shoot the bullets at him, he stops the bullets, and they're like, he's the one. They saw what he did, and they're waiting, the whole movie they're waiting, is he the one? They're asking the question, is he the one? Is he the, the chosen one? Is he the chosen one? The whole movie, and at the end, he does this miraculous thing, and they're like, he's the one. Jesus did these miraculous things, like turning water to wine, healing the invalid in John chapter 5, who had been paralyzed for, or invalid for 38 years. And yet, these people aren't looking at him and saying, he's the one. They're still not getting it, even though he came with all these mighty works to accomplish the will of the Father. I mean, just let's apply this real quick. When you think about Jesus, do you think he's the one? He's the Savior. He's Lord. I hope you see him that way. So that's the first witness, God the Father. The second witness he mentions here in verses 31 through 35 is, of course, John the Baptist. And we won't read all those verses again. You can see those there in 31 through 35. Um, I was thinking about this. I had never really thought about it this way. But, and see if you guys agree, we might can discuss this on Wednesday night in our small groups. When John 5 happened, when Jesus is standing before these Jewish leaders who are accusing him of blasphemy and breaking the Sabbath, was Jesus at that time more popular than John the Baptist? I think John the Baptist, early in Jesus' life, was a well, more well-known figure. Although at this time, he may have already been killed by Herod. But nonetheless, John the Baptist was a big deal in those days. People knew him. Who's this crazy guy out there preaching in the wilderness? People knew who he was. And Jesus comes and speaks very highly of John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, if you look down at verse 35, he says, John the Baptist was a burning and a shining light. And you were willing for a season to rejoice in that light. We've, we've studied this uh, you know, months ago, but John the Baptist was a shining light in this world, pointing people to the light of the world. John the Baptist came and said, remember what he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Another place he said, um, you know, he, he, just, he pointed people to Christ. I'm not worthy to stoop down and unlatch his, his sandals. And John the Baptist's, tes his, the Baptist's testimony was evidence that Jesus was the Christ. Someone said, John the Baptist had honored Christ, and now in John chapter 5, Christ honors him by speaking highly of him. And the application point here is pretty interesting. I'm going to bring in application here early in the sermon, but note, note here that Christ cares for his people. Christ, Jesus Christ cares for his people. No matter what we go through, what we've been through, how many mistakes we make, how many shortcomings we have, Christ cares for his people. And the world may despise us. The world may not care what we're doing. Christ does. He cares about us. Number three, the third witness. And I've already briefly touched on this, but the third witness are the miracles of Christ. And we see that in verses 36 and 37. And again, if you remember, this chapter began with the miracle. There in the first part of chapter 5, when Jesus goes up and heals this man. Again, you, you've, you've heard these sermons. The man was invalid 38 years, and Jesus went up, and the man didn't seek Jesus out, right? Jesus went to him and, and healed him, and actually healed him. And, and we see that's just uh, what kind of led to all this stuff we're, we're discussing uh, here. But I want you to understand, these miracles are to prove that Christ was who he said he was. These miracles that Christ did 
authenticated his identity. Let me ask this question, church. Do you believe Christ actually did miracles? The world thinks we're silly for believing that, right? Like, and I was reading some articles this week. Some like, and it was like even some Christian publications that were like, you know, he might have done some of those things, but there's no way he did all those things. And some of these are like pseudo Christian, or you know, organizations. But I was like, I don't know. Maybe we're just maybe I'm just naive, but I believe Christ did all these things. I don't think I am. I think he really did all these things. And even in Christ's day. People that maybe didn't even believe in him understood he did miracles. Look in chapter 3. Flip to chapter 3 if you have your Bible there in your lap. And look at verse 2. We studied this a while back. Nicodemus came to Jesus and wanted to ask Jesus some questions. Look at verse 2 of John 3. It says, The same came to him by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. By the way, this, you know, likely possibly here before Nicodemus really had trusted in Christ because he hadn't heard the message yet, but for no man can do these miracles that you're doing unless God is with him. So Nicodemus, probably before he even put his faith in Christ, realized these, this guy's doing miracles. This guy's sent from God. How about uh, in John chapter 11? Flip there with me. In John chapter 11 which we'll study a couple months from now, Lord willing. Find verse 47, John eleven forty-seven. 47. It says, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council. By the way, chief priests and Pharisees, these people did not like Jesus. And said, What do we do? For this man doeth many miracles. Even Jesus' enemies in his own day were like, yeah, he's doing miracles. <laughs> this guy's doing stuff. He's doing stuff that shouldn't be. It's funny that people now will deny these miracles when even his enemies in his day did not deny them. Just a thought. As I studied this, I came across, obviously, of course, a J.C. Ryle quote I had to bring out. And it's, it's around this idea of, what do you think, church, what do you think was the greatest miracle Jesus ever did? Was it water to wine, raising Lazarus from the dead, healing a man who'd been sick for 38 years? What was Jesus' greatest miracle? Think about it. Your salvation? I like that. Raising himself? I like that. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said. He said, let the enemies of the Bible take our Lord's last and greatest miracle, his own resurrection from the dead, and let them disprove it if they can. When they have done that, it will be time to consider what they say about miracles in general. They have never answered the evidence of it yet, and they never will. Let the friends of the Bible not be moved by objections against miracles until that one miracle has been fairly disposed of. If that is proved unassailable, they need not care much for quibbling arguments against other miracles. If Christ did really rise from the dead by his own power, there is none of his mighty works which man need hesitate to believe. 
we believe in the resurrection, we can certainly believe in these miracles. And these miracles point to who Christ is and why he came. Witness number four in verses 38 and 39, and it is the scriptures. He tells these guys, you've not his word abiding in you. By the way, look at that, look at that in verse 38. Let that, may that never be said of us, right? You do not have his word abiding in you. I pray, and we should as Christians say the opposite, right? The word of God is in us. What do I say to you sometimes? Get into the word until the word gets into you. May the word of God be abiding in us. But he tells these guys, you don't have it abiding in you. You don't believe the one that the Father has sent, which is him. In verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures. And in, in those scriptures, you think you have eternal life. But those things testify of me. Now watch me. These people that Jesus is talking to, these are guys that don't miss church. They have their Bibles with them at church tucked under their arm. I mean, these are good, in the world's view, good religious folks. And he says there, you, you, you know the scriptures, you search the scriptures. What do you see? And they're missing the point. Even those folks who knew the law are missing Christ. I, I was thinking about this. How many people today, how many people right now are sitting in a church building and know a lot about the Bible, but don't actually know Christ? That's one of the most sad things I can think of. People that go to church all the time, sit in a room, hear the preaching, hear other believers share their faith, and yet deny truly in their heart who Christ is. It's pretty sad. Because if you know the scripture, if you look at the scripture, it all points to Jesus. Did you know that? The Old Testament is like a big flashing arrow pointing ahead to Christ. Look ahead. Here, there's one coming. He's going to be the Savior. There's one coming, and it's a big flashing light to Christ. So whether it's the prophets, the Psalms, the first five books, the Pentateuch, they point to Christ. And yet... These people Jesus is speaking to who should know that do not believe. So that leads me to verses 40 through 49. With all this evidence, with all this evidence, why do so many people not believe in Jesus? And if you'll see there, I've kind of outlined these points for you. Just kind of repeating what the verses say. There's nothing special that I've come up with here. These, this is what the verses say. Number one, they don't give glory to Christ. Verse 41 Verse 42, they don't know the love of God. Verse 43, they don't receive Jesus. And there again it says they do not seek, verse 43, they do not seek the true God. I want you to look at verse 44. He brings up Moses here, which I guess we could say is a fifth witness. And he's speaking here about the things Moses wrote, and he says if you had believed, verse 46, excuse me, if you had believed Moses... You would have believed me, for he wrote of me. When Moses wrote about the tabernacle of God, he was pointing to, a, to Christ who would one day come and tabernacle among people. When Moses said, one day a greater prophet's going to come, he's speaking about Christ. How hardened were the hearts of these people that Jesus stands in front of them and they have 
heard from probably from his own mouth, John the Baptist. They've heard from the mouth of Christ. They have the Old Testament scriptures. They've seen the miracles of Jesus. How hard must their hearts be to not receive Christ? Why would they not believe? And it leads me to, to this conclusion that our unbelief, people's unbelief does not come from a lack of evidence, especially for us, right, in the South, in the Bible Belt. Almost all of our circles we, we around, there's at least somebody in our circle that would be a Christian for most of us, for most people around here. And so we, it's not a lack of evidence that causes us to not believe. It's a lack of the will to believe. People do not desire Christ, unless they're a Christian, right? If you're a Christian, you desire Christ. But before you become a Christian, you do not actually desire Him. Do you have anybody in your life, a family member, friend, and you're like, why won't they be saved? Why won't they turn to Christ? We probably all have somebody like that in our lives. Why won't they do it? Have they not heard the gospel? Yeah, you've probably shared it with them. Have they not been to church? You've probably invited them to church. It's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of truth. It's a hardened heart. It's a stubborn will that would never choose God on its own because it's been depraved and ruined and corrupted by sin. And that's why when we're preaching to people or when we're witnessing to people, we don't try to manipulate them or trick them or get them to make some quick decision. We want to make sure we preach the gospel and Pray that God does the saving work in them. Can God forgive sin? Can God forgive sin? Will God forgive sin? He will and He can if people turn to Him for that forgiveness. But people are unwilling to repent. I, I thought about this, why? Is it because of pride, a love of sin, a love of the world? It's probably a combination of all that. Unbelievers do not desire God. John 3.19, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Notice the word love in John 3.19. They don't just like the darkness. They don't just tolerate the darkness. And is it evident in our world today that this is true? Men, the world, loves darkness. And then over in Matthew 23, 37, Jesus said, I would have gathered you, but you would not be gathered. Why do unbelievers stay unbelievers? It's a, they're corrupted by sin and unwilling to turn to Christ. This Christ who has given so much, this Christ who lived the perfect life, this Christ who suffered and died for sinners, this Christ is often, people just, I don't, I, don't know if, I don't know if he's for me. Is it because people want to be in control of their lives? People want to be the main thing? Do people want to get praise for themselves and not give it to someone else? Do people want to be exalted? Do people want to be made much of? Do people want to be somebody? In reality, those things define all of us until the sovereign grace of God saved our souls and brought us near to Him. And 
I think we we would apply this sermon. These these last verses to me really apply what he said previously, and that is to say, I'm sent from God, but you would not turn to me. Verse 40. You will not come to me, but you may have life. If you're here this morning, and you've never given your life to Christ, or repented of your sins, and put your faith in Christ, maybe Jesus is saying this to you. You will not come to me, that you may have life. And I want to tell you, if that's you this morning, if anybody's thinking about this, or feeling this way, it's not enough to feel bad about your sin. You must have a heart change, right? All the Christians should agree with this. You must have a heart change where the Bible says God removes the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, which is a spiritual way to say he gives you a new heart. He makes you alive in Christ. I once heard a preacher say, some people miss heaven by 16 inches. I was like, what? He says, it's the distance from the head to the heart. That you, you know the facts, but you've never really given your heart and turned your heart to Christ. Jesus was sent from heaven to earth. He was sent to preach the gospel, to live, and to die. The Father testifies of it. John the Baptist testified of it. Miracles testified of it. And the scriptures testify of it. So now, what do you say? What do you say about Christ? What do you say about these witnesses? Do you think these witnesses are true, or do you say they're false? If you say they're true, then you should turn your life to Christ. Faith, faith is drinking of the living water for the satisfaction of our souls. Have you had a drink from the living water? Are you satisfied in Christ? Let's pray.